The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. My name is Victoria Smith, and uh, the scripture reading today is from Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, and Ephesians chapter 6, 1 through 4. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land of the Lord your God is giving you. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for it is <laughs> for his right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up with the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Victoria. Well done. And uh, let me just uh, first uh, acknowledge that we had Sandra McCracken leading us in music this morning. You know you're in Nashville when your regular music leader is on tour with Amy Grant and Sandra McCracken steps in to lead. Uh, so grateful for Sandra. We, we actually sang two of her songs. Some of you may not know that uh, during the uh, congregational singing. She's written so many uh, hopeful, honest, redemptive songs. We just encourage you, if you're not familiar with Sandra's work, uh, to get familiar with it. Um, between her and Andrew Peterson especially, I go back and forth uh, during my sermon preparation time, and that's been going on for the last 10 years, so those are the two voices. Uh, but uh, so grateful for Sandra, thankful for Kevin Twitt and his influence uh, up here in, in uh, artists like Sandra and so many who've come through the world of Belmont and uh, gone on to serve Christ and serve the human community in, in these wonderfully redemptive ways. And so, so as I drove in this morning, uh, I, I passed by the marquee, and I wondered if we uh, have done some bad advertising, because who on earth wants to come and hear a sermon called Honor Authority? And yet, that's the sermon title today, and I hope that by the end of the next few moments, uh, the, the sound of those two words, Honor Authority, will uh, maybe sound better and more inviting to you than they did when you first came in. Uh, authority includes parents, and parents are, of course, uh, listed as the prototype uh, in both of these texts, but it also includes teachers, employers, clergy, government leaders, band leaders, all just laws, God himself. And it is in our human nature, and this is why it was bad advertising on the marquee, it is within human nature to resist authority. It's been true since the very beginning. So I recently came across a quote from an older man who complained this way. Young people today love luxury. They have bad manners, contempt for authority, no respect for older people, and talk nonsense when they should work. Young people do not stand up any longer when adults enter the room. They contradict their parents, talk too much in company, guzzle their food, lay their legs on the table, and tyrannize their elders. Who said this? Socrates, 400 years before Christ. You can go even further back than that, all the way back to the beginning. And this is... This is 
a word of encouragement that, I, that I'll offer to those of you who are in positions of leadership or are parents. If you ever feel like a leadership or parental failure, remember this. God is the perfect father and the perfect king. And his children and the citizens of his kingdom have been resisting his authority since the beginning of time. Started with Adam and Eve, continues to the present day. Of course, that was the case with Israel, as we've discovered in the Moses story. Constantly grumbling against the authority of God and the people that he had put in the place of authority. It's still an issue today. I was actually having a conversation with my wife, Patty, a couple of weeks ago. And she said, I was at Target today. Get this, I was at Target today, and they didn't have the shampoo I was looking for. And the first thought that came into my mind was, who's the manager here? And then she says, what is it about us? My wife's very humble, by the way, and she's not. She's somebody you want to be in community with. But she said, what is it about us? What is it about me that I've I've just got this natural, innate distrust for and suspicion of leaders? So to that question and to that history, I want to put two points before us today. One is uh, words to those who follow and the other is words to those who lead. So let's, let's start with what it means to follow as unto Christ. What's being commanded here? Well, before we get to what's being commanded, we've got to uh, just pause for a second and talk about what's not being commanded. Unconditional obedience to authorities is not being commanded here. It's very clear. There's a qualifier. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. And then it goes on to say, you know, fathers do not provoke or do not embitter your children. And, and so, so a couple of things. If you find yourself in a place where you are subject to, say, overly aggressive, injurious, abusive leadership in the home, at work, in the civic space, the best way to honor the leader is to remove yourself. To say, I honor you by refusing to subject myself to this kind of treatment. This was a case with the young David when, when King Saul became jealous of him and became a bully and an aggressor. David removed himself for a long season from this aggressive man. The other occasion when it's, it's actually best not to obey a leader is when the leader tries to guide you down an unfaithful path. You see this in Acts chapter 4, for example, where you know, the authorities are threatened by the advancement of the gospel and the, the, the influence of the message of Christ on the people. They feel like they're losing grip on their own control over the people. And they forbid the apostles from preaching Christ any further. And, and, and the apostles say, far be it from us to obey men instead of the Lord. So, this command's not talking about unconditional obedience, but rather obedience in the Lord. It's also not commanding that we have warm feelings toward those who 
lead us. It says, obey your parents. Now, there's a difference between obeying and agreeing. You know, uh, a, a father can say to his son, let's get in the car right now so we can make the kickoff at the Titans game. And the the son dutifully gets in the car and they go. But that's really agreeing because the son has been looking forward to the football game for months and months. But a mother can say to her son, make your bed, or do your homework, or eat your vegetables, and, and suddenly you're in a to obey or not to obey situation, which is, a, which is different than an I agree with this situation. The whole reason why there has to be a command to obey is that it is within the human heart to resist obeying, even the good and healthy things that come from authority. The test of the, the test of obedience is not how you respond when you want to do what you're told, but, but, but how you respond when you don't want to do what you're told. So it's not about having warm feelings toward authority. It's also not about admiring authority. I mean, if we look at the whole context of Scripture, you look at the Old Testament, you've got you know, the, the evil enslaving Pharaoh. You've got the aggressor and, and the jealous, insecure King Saul. You've got Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon who commands people to worship him or else they will die. And then the whole New Testament is written with the backdrop of, of emperors like Nero running Rome. These anti-religious, aggressive people, so aggressive that the Apostle Paul, as well as 11 of the 12 original disciples of Christ, were executed for their faith by the Roman government, by the Roman state. It's in this context that Paul says to resist governing authorities is to resist God who's put them in their position. And it's in this context to which Peter says, fear God and honor the king. What is this about? If we don't admire them, if we don't feel warm about them, if we don't want to obey them, then, then what are we being called to do? The word that's used here is honor. It's the Greek word kabed, which means weight. Assign weight or weightiness or significance, if not to the person, then to the position that he or she is in. To take the position seriously. This is why when David, the young David, had a chance to kill King Saul, and, and, and all of David's men are saying, look, he's been after you, he's got a bounty on your head, he's a, an aggressor, you've got him. Take his life. And, and, and David said, far be it from me to strike the Lord's anointed. What's this about? God gave King Saul to the people of Israel. Why on earth would God do that? Because they asked for it. Because Saul was exactly what they wanted. There was this season in Israelite history where, where the Lord says, I will be your king. And the people said, no. We want a king like the surrounding nations have. Meaning we want a political leader. We want a military leader to guide us. And we think he's the one because he's the biggest, strongest, mightiest, fiercest one in our midst. And God says, okay, have it your way. And we'll see how it works out. And it did not work out 
well, but Israel wanted Saul more than they wanted the Lord to be their king. But here's, here's, here's the goodness of God. God turned even that into good, and I think this is some insight we can gain when we find ourselves in the position where we do not like, enjoy, respect, appreciate the leadership that we've been called to honor. David was actually formed in many ways through the experience of King Saul treating him so poorly. So many of those psalms that we now have were written out of distress, were written out of of circumstances where, where David was a refugee hiding in a cave protecting himself from, from, from the aggressive treatment of Saul, and it was through that pain, through that hardship, that sorrow, that sense of being exiled and excluded that, that, that formed in David a deep, visceral need for God. You want to be like David, you got to suffer. You want to know God like Paul, then you have to be able to say, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Romans 8.28 famously says that God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. What this means is that God has this way about taking the very worst conditions and turning them into the very best opportunities to form God's people into godly people, into humble people, reliant people, confessing people, repenting people, thankful people. That's why Paul goes on in Romans 5 to say we rejoice in our sufferings, not because of our sufferings, but in them. When we're called into them, when we find ourselves in a position of suffering like like David was under Saul, like Paul was under Nero, Paul says we rejoice even in that because God is up to something in that. The very experience and occasion of suffering produces perseverance, which produces character, which produces hope, which does not disappoint like the leaders sometimes do. Some of the very best leaders the world has ever known became that way as a reaction to having bad leaders. Some of the very best parents had bad parents. Some of the very best bosses had bad bosses. Some of the very best pastors had bad pastors. Some of the very best band leaders had bad band leaders. Some of the very best public servants just got sick of the way things were and said, all right, I'm going to be the answer to my own frustration. And yet, this is important to remember as well, even the best leaders are flawed sinners who need forgiveness when they fall short or when they fail, and also who need a word of affirmation and encouragement every now and then, like everybody else. This is one of the things that, that, that we can fall into with our leaders. We can dehumanize them. We can objectify them. We can, 
we can raise a standard for them, and, and in many ways the standard has to be raised, but we can also expect them not to suffer, not to hurt, not to struggle, not to be weak. And that's asking them to do something and to be something inhumane. One of the greatest gifts I've ever been given was a word of encouragement from our oldest daughter. So she and I were carbon copies of each other. And because we're carbon copies of each other, which means we feel deeply, we're passionate about justice and redemption, we're, we're deeply sensitive to, to brokenness, and, and, and when people hurt people, we're deeply sensitive to that. And with that personality, at our worst, we can get deeply defensive for ourselves and for our own honor. And so over the years, because we both have this personality, we had seasons of really butting heads. Seasons that I look back on and I say, I wish I'd have done that different. I wish I would have said that differently. And so with both of our daughters, I wrote them both a letter at their graduation. And... Part of the letter for her was, you know, just filled with all the praise and affirmation for the woman that she's become. And part of it, too, was a detailed apology. I'm sorry for this and this and this and this. And her response was this. I don't ever remember you hurting me and not apologizing. So it's easy to forgive you. And I also affirm that 95% of who I am, even though you never thought I was listening to your sermons, even though you thought I hated going to church, because pastor's kids are supposed to hate going to church or at least act like they do, 95% of my worldview has been shaped by you. And of course, the insecure part of me says, well, what about the 5%? <laughs> um, and then this, this was the one that really just made my heart melt. I've never for a moment doubted your love for me, even in our hardest seasons together. This is the, one, of the, one of the greatest ways to honor leaders in your life is to remember that they are dust, just like you are, and to remember that they need grace just like you do, and to remember as well, when you can think of it, that they need encouragement just like you do and just like my daughter gave to me. Every person is on some level insecure, overwhelmed, and under-encouraged, including leaders. So take that to heart, those who follow. Now, those who lead. The charge is to make it as easy to follow you as you possibly can, as easy to honor you as you possibly can. In other words, under Christ, with the help and mercy of Christ, be an honorable leader. Now, it's important to acknowledge that it's honorable people whose honor you desire. And it's actually a sign, perhaps, that you're leading well when dishonorable people dishonor you. As the life of Jesus Christ shows us, being a supremely honorable leader does not guarantee that people will honor you. Look, Jesus had 500 eyewitnesses to his resurrection and only 120 followers. 
between, you know, his resurrection and Pentecost. 500 eyewitnesses and 120 followers. That says something. That the most honorable king, that the most honorable father, that the most honorable big brother Jesus, honorable people were drawn to his leadership, but dishonorable people were not. In the same way that honorable people will resist dishonorable leadership, dishonorable followers will resist honorable leadership. And so where does that leave us? I really appreciate, especially as a self-doubter in my leadership, I'm a big self-doubter, where Paul says the pressure is off. He says, it doesn't matter to me how you judge me to those that he's leading. He also says, it doesn't matter to me even how I judge myself. What matters is what the Lord thinks. And and here are a few principles that we're given that the Lord gives us and entrusts us and says, if you want to lead in a way that pleases the Lord, these things. Number one, lead in such a way that promotes health. I appreciate this morning and other times where Nate Tasker Uh, schedules for us readings from the Book of Common Prayer. There's a confession in the Anglican Book of Common Prayer where it says, there is no saving health in us. Therefore, Lord, give us your saving health. And then there's a collect, uh, which is a short prayer, where it says, we humbly beseech you, God, for all sorts and conditions of men and women, that you would be pleased to make your ways known to them and your saving health among the nations. You know, when, when people talk about sound doctrine, when the Bible talks about sound doctrine, sound teaching, the, the word, the Greek word for sound literally means healthy. And so when it, it says raise your kids or lead other people in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, it's saying take healthy words and, 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 and teach them and lead according to healthy vision based on the healthy words of Christ. Leaders are put in a position by God, especially Christian leaders, leaders who are Christian in whatever their spheres are, to be ambassadors of health that may require sometimes inflicting short-term pain in order to to protect those you are leading from long-term unhealth. Sometimes leaders must, in ways even that those who follow them, inflict short-term pain on the system, on individuals, in order to advance long-term flourishing. If you're a parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Eat your vegetables, go to bed on time, do healthy things because I said so. There's a wisdom gap between a 42-year-old mom and a two-year-old son. You've just got to trust me on this one, son. Eat your vegetables. Go to bed on time. Or an orthopedic patient. You know, the the surgeon says your rehab is going to be tough. Everything in your body is going to say, don't. Don't move your leg. But, but if you don't move your leg, then there's going to be some long-term unhealth. But if you do move your leg, if you do what hurts the most over time, you're going to be able to run in the Olympics again. 
perhaps. Or students don't understand the unpopular teachers who make them study more than the other teachers and work harder than the other teachers. There was one that both of my daughters had in high school. And they would come home and they would say, he's so hard, he's so unreasonable, he's so unfair. He doesn't give us answers. He makes us work for the answers. He makes us find the answers. Takes so much time, takes so much effort. Other teachers don't do this. Nobody likes him. Now you ask them, after they go to college, and college studying to them was easier than high school? What teacher prepared you best for college? Oh, this guy, my favorite. So, you know, your, your short-term pariah might be your long-term hero. Lead in a way that promotes health, even if it's unpopular for certain seasons. Secondly, lead from a place of empathy. It's no mistake that, that the Lord uses the Father as the prototype. Of course, He's the Father, and He's a, he's a tender Father. And this is reflected in, in this beautiful story of a Roman centurion, a, a person with great power, in a regime not unlike Hitler's Nazi regime. That's the system that he was part of. And yet, unusually, he comes forth to Jesus with love and affection toward his sick servant. This is unusual for a Roman soldier because, you know, they, they took the same perspective about weak and sick people as Hitler did with weak and sick people. He called them useless eaters and discarded them. And yet the Roman centurion is so filled with tenderness and empathy and mercy for his servant that he begs Jesus to heal him. And here's what he says. And this becomes the basis for Jesus to say yes to his request for healing on behalf of his servant. The centurion, this man of great power and authority, says to Jesus, I am, I am a man in authority, and I am also a man under authority. An acknowledgement. I may be a soldier, but you're the king. Tell me what to do. Tell me what to think. Tell me what's good and right and healthy, and please heal my servant. You know, the Ten Commandments begin in Exodus 20 with a preamble starts with this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. And so to obey and, and to instruct your children or those who follow your leadership in the Lord means to lead them toward a place of tenderness and mercy and empathy and understanding. There's this incarnational thing that's being encouraged in the Scriptures. You know, this, this, this humility where the centurion actually puts himself on the level with his servants. I'm under authority too. Well, I'm a man in authority right now, but maybe he's recognizing that he actually might be this servant's servant in glory because God turns, turns things upside down. So I'm also a man under authority. In other words, we're the same. You know, right now, positionally I'm above him, but personally we're equals treats him as a brother in the same way that Paul says to the former slave owner Philemon, I'm sending your former escaped slave back to you. Don't treat him as a slave, treat him as a brother. 
built into this command to raise your children in the fear and instruction of the Lord is to not provoke and embitter them. And the way that you don't provoke and you don't embitter is you don't lord it over. You don't become authoritarian with your authority. Christ is, of course, the supreme picture of what it means to lead with loving authority. So, third, lead from a place of humble holiness. The discipline and instruction of the Lord. The the very worst leadership that there is is the kind that says, do as I say, but not as I do. The very best kind of leadership is, is the leadership that Paul offered, where he said, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. In other words, you know, the, the, the best leaders are always ahead. They, they, they've always already gone where they're leading other people to go. You know, I remember my first assignment as a pastor, the first request that was made. I was an assistant pastor at a church in Kansas City. And the senior pastor, and I think he did this to test me. He said, there's a, there's a pile of roly-poly bugs under the administrative assistant's desk, and it would be really great if you could have those vacuumed up before staff meeting on Monday. That was the first thing I was asked to do. And my heart, you know, did what my wife's heart did when, you know, the, the shampoo wasn't there. Who's the manager here? Stick it to the man. I, I've got, I'm a master of divinity. That's what my degree says. I'm not, I didn't train to vacuum up roly-poly bugs. And then I realized that Christ himself got down on his knees to wash feet. Christ himself said, the ones who are great, the ones who are the leaders in the kingdom are the ones who serve. The ones who use their power and use their authority to show up as servants. Robert Murray McShane, the great Scottish 19th century minister said, the very best thing that ministers can give to their people is their own holiness. So as soon as my wife stops saying that I have private integrity is the day that I should quit public ministry. The best thing that leaders can give to those under their leadership is their own holiness. And at the center of Christian holiness is also Christian humility. You know, you, you know this. St. Augustine has asked, what, what, what are the top three virtues of Christianity? And he said, humility, humility, and humility. Paul, you know, who said, follow my example. This is the only way that Paul did not follow the example of Christ. He confessed his sins. Christ had none. Romans 7, he's very open about his covetous heart. 1 Timothy 1, he refers to himself believing it. I am the chief of sinners. It says, uh, Steve Brown, Christian teacher and pastor Steve Brown, seminary professor Steve Brown said, Christian leader is just a beggar who's in a position to tell other beggars where they can find the, be- find the bread. So that leads us, lastly, to the bread himself. Lead as one who has been loved and led and fed well by Jesus, who is both the perfect leader and was the perfect follower as well. Those of you who are here to listen to David Filson's sermon last week, I I don't know about you, but I was counting the days to get back to church. It just motivated me 
to worship with the people of God. But one of the things he said in that sermon is something he says often. Where we fail, Jesus mightily prevails. Another fellow pastor said it this way, God does not love us to the degree that we are like Christ. He loves us to the degree that we are in Christ. And that is always 100%. Christ obeyed perfectly. He honored authority perfectly on your behalf. And so that's your record. You're not a criminal. You're not a rebel. You don't resist when the shampoo's not on, your sh- on the shelf. You don't resist when the serpent whispers in your ear, has God really said? Even if you have resisted, you're covered and clothed with the perfect obedience, with the perfect record, with the perf- perfect righteousness, with the perfect response to authority of Christ. And you're also covered with his perfect exercise of authority You, we, who have blown it in our exercise of authority, we are covered by his perfect exercise of authority. What does an authority do? An authority steps in and and, and assumes author power on some level in somebody else's Story. Jesus is presented to us as the author and perfecter of our faith. The, the authority, the authority and perfecter of our faith. He reauthors our sinful, broken, damaged, overwhelmed, under-encouraged, insecure stories, both as leaders and as followers, by being dishonored so that we would receive honor, by being despised and rejected so that we would be loved and accepted by being disobeyed repeatedly. So we would be regarded as those who have obeyed even when we haven't, reckoned that way, and so that we would be motivated to obey in ways we never have before because we're under grace. We can only give, here's here's the punchline, we can only give away, whether it's in terms of following or leading, we can only give away what we've also received. Which brings me to the Apostle Paul's words about communion and the bread itself. Listen to Paul. For I received from the Lord what I also now pass on to you. And what did he say after that? He said the very words that I have the honor of officiating after every sermon. Paul said, what I received from the Lord, the authority that I received from the Lord, the tenderness and grace and nourishment that I received from the Lord, I now pass on to you that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper is God's gift to God's people. This is his exercise of authority. This is how Jesus exerts his power. He encourages us fiercely, saying, you are worth this. You have this level of value in my eyes. 
You were worth living for. You were worth dying for. And I've risen from the dead to seal it. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as the, as the children's footsteps ring in our ears as they come back to join us for this feast, Lord, remind us that we are all children. We are all under authority, and we never escape that position. But thank you, Lord, that we are under the authority of one who uses his authority, who uses his power not to crush, but to serve, to wash feet, to even lay down his life that those he leads might live and learn as well to lead in different ways. We thank you for the bread and cup. We thank you for your love that's better than life to which it speaks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.